Okay, we are reading in Luke, Luke chapter 9. We're going to be reading from verse 46, Luke 9, 46. And let me reiterate, what we're doing is we're looking at the chronological life of Jesus. Luke is the only of the, one of the four Gospels that says that it is written chronologically. So the other three are not written chronologically. They have a different purpose. Luke's purpose is to show us chronologically what happens. It's one of his purposes. And so we're using that as our template. And then we look at the other Gospels as they fill in the stories that we, read, that we, we track in Luke. Now, not everything is mentioned in Luke, uh, but those, we fill in the different pieces from, from the, the gaps there. Uh, but Luke is our, is our template. And so, reading in Luke, chapter 9, verse 46, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their hearts, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among you all, all least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Alright, so what we're going to focus in on is is uh, is verse forty six. <clears throat> An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. This is one of the indications when I was reading in, in uh Will Durant. Will Durant wrote The History of Civilization. This is a, a huge series. It's like an like a, uh, encyclopedia. And he has a, uh, one of the chapters is called uh, Caesar and Christ. And as you're reading this, as a historian, as, a, as an agnostic Jew historian, Will Durant says that reading the Gospels can only show you that this was not made up. So a historian looks at this and he says this was not made up by a bunch of by, by a, a group of, of a few men. He said, had it been, it would have been more miraculous than any of the miracles that Jesus himself had done. And one of the issues that he points out is he talks about how there is so much written by the disciples about the weakness of the disciples themselves. Now this is written by Luke, who was not one of the twelve. But he's writing this, who was not, I'm sorry, he, he may have been a part of this, this particular type of group who walked with Jesus. But in this particular thing, he's not in this group. And he's saying of them, he says that there was an argument among themselves. There was an argument. And he uses this, he says, who would ever write about themselves saying that they lacked faith, they had arguments among themselves. And you think about it. When I write about myself, I don't generally write or talk about my weaknesses. You know, I might mention it to show that I'm being humble. <clears throat> but, but, um, uh, but these men, you really get into it. So they were having an argument among themselves. So there's these 12 guys. They're not much different in age than you. They were probably in their 20s, maybe early 30s. And uh, they may have even been younger than their 20s because many of them were unmarried and, and uh, Peter was married, but, but men often would get married at around the ages between 16 and 18 in Israel at that time. So many of them may have been quite young, about your age, and they're having an argument among themselves. There's an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. So they're arguing which of them is the greatest. Now, it's interesting that Jesus only took Peter, James, and John up to the transfiguration, and that's, that's just what they had come through. 
And then, and then shortly after that, then there were nine others that couldn't get that, that uh, demon cast out of the guy. And then Jesus, right after that, he, he provides for Peter's uh, uh, taxes to be paid, the, the temple tax, but not the other 11. So maybe Peter thought he was somewhere special in this. We don't have any details, but there's an argument among them. When I, when I first started growing in the Lord, I moved into a discipleship program in a house with, and in this house were nine other Christian guys. And we were all in college. And so I can identify with this type of argument going on, because when you get a bunch of college guys living together, you know, they, they argue about silly little things, you know, who's got the, you know, the broadest chest, who's got the biggest biceps, and, 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 and you know, these are the types of things that young guys do. So it's really characteristic of people of that age. They're arguing among them as to which of them is the greatest. Now turn to this same portion in Mark. Look in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. They came to Capernaum, Mark 9:33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Okay, so Mark reveals a little bit more about what was happening in that situation. He doesn't just say that there was an argument. He says that they came to Capernaum. Remember, this is now Jesus' home territory uh, in Capernaum. So Jesus asks them, so, what were you talking about along the way? Gulp. <laughs> you know, you know they, they, didn't want to, they didn't want to share this because it's not a very flattering thing that there's an argument among them. And the argument is, which one of them is the greatest? So Jesus just asked them, so what were you talking about? He well knows what they're talking about. So he asked them. And it says, but they kept silent from the way they discussed which one of them was the greatest. So they didn't tell him. He asked them, point blank, what were you talking about? I don't know. Let him who thinks he's the greatest tell you. I don't know. Just, they're not gonna, they don't want to confess this sort of thing. So you see that men would not write this about themselves. This speaks to the authenticity of what we're reading. They didn't want to talk about it. So Jesus, he knows well what they were talking about, and he gives, he says it right here. He says, sitting down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus, really tenderly, he doesn't you know, say, wow, you guys, I mean, I have worked so long with you for three years, I've worked with you, and still this is the kind of stuff you're talking about? No, he well understands people. He sits down, so he's not lording it over them. He just sits down. He calls them around. He says, let me tell you. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So greatest, the greatest among you is last of all and servant of all. That's the greatest. He says, this is, in my estimation, this is how it's done. You want to be great? This is greatness here on earth. This is what they're arguing about. They were not arguing about who was going to be greatest in heaven. It's greatest among them. 
He says, the greatest among you will be last of all and servant of all. Now let's turn to Matthew and see how Matthew records this, this portion. And Matthew gives us a little more information, a little complimentary information actually. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the child to himself and he set him before them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Matthew tells us, now, now, now remember, Matthew's among this group of guys. Mark wasn't among them either. Luke and Mark are recording them. Matthew's one of them. So Matthew doesn't really even mention really this argument that was going on. He just mentions the disciples asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is perfect. This is exactly what you should do. You're having an argument with a bunch of guys that say, which one of you is the greatest? Jesus comes along and says, so, what are you talking about today? Uh, he has something to ask you? They say, um, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, this is, a, this is a, now a, a theological thing. You know, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So they, they shift the argument. They shift this to my, from myself to, well, we were just thinking about greatness. In the, is it Moses? Is it Elijah? Tell us, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Let's just focus in, first of all, before, and then Jesus addresses them as to who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what we've been able to do from these three synoptic gospels is to kind of, is to piece together what was going on in this conversation. But let's go back, let's go back to uh, uh, this portion in, in Mark. In Mark, it says, in Mark 9, verse 35, sitting down, he called the twelve and he said to them, if any wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So greatness, greatness comes with being last of all and servant of all. You want to be great in this life, you need to become a servant. This is totally different than any other faith, any other religion, any other worldview. You know, you come riding up on a horse. You know, and our whole society is, oh, you know, the one who's going to come in and, you know, be in the interview and just command this thing. This, this is the one you want. She said, greatness. Greatness is servanthood. Greatness is servanthood. And what Jesus is constantly doing with our lives, with their lives, with our lives, is the same sort of thing. We live on this knife edge. We just balance on this thing. And as soon as we start going on this side of pride, so... Who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's greatest on earth? Now, they may well have felt pretty great hanging out with Jesus. You're going to feel pretty special. I mean, Jesus is healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out lepers. Everybody wants to see Jesus. And, you know, you're on the inner circle. You're with Him. That's pretty special. You know, you made a special guy. Say, say Barack Obama is, is your buddy. And tell everyone, you Barack, Barack Obama and I, we kind of grew up together. We're, we're friends. You know, we hang out together. We're tight. You know, we do that. <laughs> and and uh, that's, that makes you pretty special. Think of it with Jesus. With Jesus. 
how special they may have felt that they were. Plus, Jesus had given them power to cast out demons, to do all sorts of, of work. So they're thinking they're pretty special. Jesus just, as they're leaning over into this thing of pride, he just begins to redirect them. He says, no, you have to become a servant. The other thing about this living in this knife edge is that when we start teetering onto the side of low self-esteem and wondering how we could ever accomplish anything, he starts to lift us back up upright and he encourages us. And he says that, you know, you are a royal priesthood. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. And he reminds us of all that we can accomplish in him. Because to fall on the other extreme, like I can do nothing, you'll have a defeated life. Have a really a defeated life. And so he keeps just, just taking us in our lives. And I know it. It happens to me all the time. Now, I'll give you an example, an extreme example of an, of an individual. Say you take a basketball player who at the age of 18 graduates from high school and goes into the NBA. We have several examples of this. They don't even have to go to college. They just bypass college and go right into the NBA. And you see young men either right out of high school or somewhere in college, they go into the NBA and they do all sorts of crazy things and they make idiots of themselves because of their attitudes. I am surprised that they don't make more idiots of themselves. If I were 18 or 19 or 20 years old, making $15 million a year, and everybody looking to me as if I'm something, someone really important and really cool, and everybody's cheering and saying, rah, rah, and you know, putting out their hand and slapping my hand when I go by. I mean, it would be really difficult to walk in humility. It would be really difficult not to start thinking I'm really great. It is amazing that professional athletes, that rock stars do actually as well as they do in the midst of how easy it is. I mean, so, so there are certainly things in my life. I mean, I'm not big, right? I'm not greatly handsome, right? I mean, so what do I have to be proud about? But still pride comes in. Whatever little thing there might be, it comes in. I fall on my knees and I implore God, please work through me in this message. Father, empower me. Father, there's nothing in me. I can't do this. Then I give the message and people are blessed. And I walk out. Hey, I did pretty good. <laughs> you see how insidious this thing is of thinking that somehow we're great. He says, you want greatness. Here's what it is. It is servanthood. When you will do something for another and you will prefer somebody over yourself, it is servanthood. This whole thing of pride that I am something, in Proverbs, in Proverbs 16, verse 18, it says, pride goes before a fall. And God in His grace allows this. Allows this. This is gracious of the Lord to allow our pride to be followed by a fall. Because it brings us back upright again. Pride goes before a fall. It says in Proverbs 8.13 that the fear of the Lord is to hate pride. God hates it. Hates it. Those are pretty strong words. He, Daniel said to King Belshazzar, 
uh, who was the, actually the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He refers to him as his father, but he was actually, actually was Belshazzar's grandfather. And he says, you know, your father walked in pride and God humbled him. And you saw it. And you didn't turn. So God does this. He actually turns it and he humbles us through this. And he does things in our lives. So I, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you another thing that God does to make sure that we don't start thinking that we're more than we really ought. He gives us things gradually in life. Turn, turn to this verse in, in 1 Timothy 3.6. 1 Timothy 3.6. In 1 Timothy, you've got, you've got, the, uh, you've got the, the requirements for an overseer, for a pastor of a church. Here are the requirements. In 1 Timothy 3.6, here's one of the requirements. And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Make sure that a pastor, as excited for the Lord as he may be, as, as he may be really excellent in getting other people saved and sharing the gospel and, and have a gift in, of evangelism. But if he's a new believer, don't let him become a pastor. He's not ready for it. Don't let a new convert become a pastor. Never. This is one of the requirements. When we were, we were uh, selecting a new pastor for this church, when Pastor Landon left a few, few years ago, I served on the, on the committee. And uh, when we were looking at, at Roger, because he was going, we, we were considering Roger's pastor, we just went right through this list. Right through this list. I mean, it, you, you say, well, God is going to speak in some holy way, and He's going to tell us what person it is to be pastor. He doesn't do that. How do we know he doesn't do that? Because he gave us a list of criteria. If he was going to speak and say, uh, Joe X is your pastor. He lives, in, he, he lives in Kentucky at this address. Go find him. That's your pastor. He could do that, couldn't he? He could do that. Well, how do we know he doesn't? Because he gave us a whole list of things to go through. And you go through the list. And I'll tell you, so, so if, you, if you look at it in, in, in verse 2 of, of 1 Timothy chapter 3, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, be gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manage, manages his own household well, keeping his children under control and dignity. But if the man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church? And then he goes on, he can't be a new convert, he will, or else he'll be conceited. Verse 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so he will not fall into re- reproach. So he, he, it, it talks about these different sort of things. It talks about th- having this generous sort of heart. I'll tell you one of the things that we did, is that a subgroup of the committee, there were two accountants on the committee. It was their job to go to Roger and ask him, for the last several years of his, of his tax return statements. Say, That's none of their business. No, it is their business. It has to be generous. And they compared that to the church statements. Is the man tithing? Do we want a pastor up there suggesting that we tithe who himself doesn't tithe? I wouldn't want that, would you? So I don't know how to assess somebody's generosity. The only people who really know how generous Shireen and I are, are is our accountant. They're the ones that see the money we make, the money we give, what we give out. And so this was done. And Roger understood. He understood. And, and uh, um, why did we do this? Because we're told to do this. Make sure you go through this list. So anyway, it can't be a new convert. 
can't be a new convert. Because God gives little by little the same pattern in, in our lives. If you turn back to Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, and you see the same sort of balancing act that God is, is working with them. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. And we're going to start reading from verse 17. Deuteronomy 7, 17. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw and the signs and the wonders and the might, mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornets, hornets against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. Okay, so 17 through 21, what he told them is, you can do it. You can take this land. I will drive them out before you. You may say they're big, they're too strong for us. You see, he's just lifting them up from this low self-esteem saying, you can do it. Now look what he says in verse 22. The Lord your God will not clear away the nations before the Lord your God will clear away the nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. He said, little by little, I'm going to give you this land. Little by little. The same thing happens in a career. He gives it little by little. Let me give you an example of this from my own personal life. I was in uh, my early 30s, and I was praying to God, Oh Lord, give me a publication in nature. Now, nature is the highest level place you could publish something. Has a has has a, a impact factor that's I don't know in the mid 30s. It's really huge. It's just huge. And I'm praying, Lord, do this, Lord, do. This. And you know, I'm believing it and praying for it, and it's not coming. It's just not happening. Year after year, it's just not happening. It wasn't until I was in my late 40s that God gave me that nature publication, and it was on the cover of nature. I couldn't have handled it in my 30s. If I had gotten that in my early 30s, I mean, what would I do for an encore? <laughs> God knew to hold that back. It's like a little kid. Uh, hey, hey, Dad, that chainsaw looks a lot of fun. It looks like a lot of fun. Hey, can I try that? And God said, no. You're going to have to wait. He gives us things little by little to protect us. I thank the Lord that I don't have to have the income and the notoriety of a young basketball player or a young football player. Or else I'd be terrible. I mean, I'd be mean, I'd be angry, and the same thing has happened in my career. When my, my career started just, you know, just taking off and all this, this grant money was rolling in, I noticed how I was becoming harsher with secretaries, how I was becoming more judgmental with my colleagues that weren't getting all this grant money. And mind you, I was praying on my knees for grant money, so God is providing it. And I'm becoming proud that I have it, and I'm judging others who don't have it. That's how insidious this thing of pride really is. And then you know what would happen? Six months later, a grant wouldn't get renewed. Another six months, another grant wouldn't get renewed. And I had this whole research group I had to feed. 
And the grants weren't getting renewed. And I'm crying out, God, please forgive me. Have mercy on me. Please forgive me. And the, and the, and the, and the department's, you know, giving me some money to see me on through. And I'm, I'm shifting around funds with some other professors. Here, would you pay for this student? And, and God really gets a hold of my heart. So you see how he uses these falls in our life. Not to just drive our nose into the ground, but to restore us. Restore us. As soon as we start thinking we're great, we start having trouble. He says, you want to be great? Learn to be a servant. You pour yourself out for others. You pour yourself out for others. You know, people have said to me, why do you give you know, so much time for these students and teaching these Bible studies? Why don't you just focus on it? Say, this is, this is what makes me great. Don't you understand? This, when I am out serving the Lord and doing the Lord's work, it makes my career greater. There's greater things in my career when I do this. When we become servants of another, I can watch. I can watch young people. I've done this enough. I can watch young people and see who's going to be great by the degree to which they serve. When I go and I speak in one of these campus groups, and <clears throat> say, say it, uh, if I go to uh, Agape or Crew, or, and, and I watch, they want to watch who's the MC, who's the student up there standing in front of all their peers and meeting early to make sure the band is right. and They're going to be great. God's going to make them great in life because they're there serving. Who are the ones who are leading the Bible studies? They're going to be the ones that are great. The ones that attend church and just come every Sunday and think that they're doing God a favor by attending church, they won't be the great ones. They might get by, but they won't be the great ones. I can tell who's going to be great by when they come and they do the dishes. Not just for five minutes, but week after week after week. I know that those are the great ones. I saw this when I was a student, when I was an undergraduate like many of you. I saw this. There was a guy who was in the discipleship program with us and one of the most unlikely fellows. And he had less training than many of the other guys coming into the program. And he would wake up very early in the morning on Sunday mornings. And, and this was at Syracuse University, so it was snow in the wintertime. And, and he, would, he would get the, the Lord's Supper stuff. He would get all, all the stuff ready. And he would go over and prepare the room on campus because it was a campus church group that, because the, 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 uh, the pastor was the evangelical chaplain of the university. And he would go and clean the room. And now the rooms were a disaster because they would have parties in these rooms on, on Friday nights. And uh, so, he would, so the janitorial staff didn't come in until early Monday morning. But the church would use that room on Sunday morning. So this kid would come in every Sunday morning, and all the other guys in the discipleship house were sleeping. And, you know, the, the, especially in the wintertime, the boots were full of salt and everything, and the ground was just covered with mess. He would push away all the chairs and mop the floor in a room about twice this size that we're in now. He would mop the floor, put back all the chairs, set up the Lord's Supper stuff, and people would just come walking in thinking, oh, it was always cleaned up and ready. The janitorial staff took care of it. No, that guy was taking care of it. And I watched that guy's life, and God blessed him so much because he became a servant of all. That guy would also go on Friday nights 
And he would go to, to the church had this, this uh, one house where they would entertain uh, uh, international students and they would have meals for the international students on Sunday afternoons in that house. He would go on Friday nights and he would go into this, this uh, they had this basement playroom area where they would have the meals. He would take out all the chairs, carry them out of there upstairs. He would wax the floor on Friday nights, wait for it to dry and then bring the chairs back down. I knew he would be great. Because servanthood makes you great. Servanthood makes you great. There was a guy who used to come to our house in every Sunday in the meal. He would be in there doing the dishes. He would serve and do the dishes constantly. Constantly. Week after week after week after week. And this went on for his entire undergraduate time here. I knew God would make him great. And I still have my eye on him. And God is making him great. He's just completing his Ph.D. now. And God is making him great. Jesus defined what will make you great in this life. It is servanthood. Servanthood will make you great. You want to be great in this life? Servanthood will make you great in this life. This is what it is. Because when one with a right heart prefers another, it makes them great. Your bosses in your career will see it. They will see it. They will acknowledge it. You will become great in this life if you become a servant. That's how Jesus defines greatness, is servanthood. And that's what Jesus demonstrated. He said, I didn't come to lord it over you. I came to serve. The Son of Man came to serve. Let's pray. Abba, Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word that redirects us. Your word that gives us a picture of what life is. How you don't give us things all at once, or else we couldn't handle it. But Father, that you give us things according as you have in your time. Thank you, Father, that you care enough for us that you give us things according as you would have in your time. Thank you, Father, for redefining what greatness is, that it is servanthood. Father, I pray for these young people that you would give them lives of a servant, that they would serve others, they would serve the body of Christ, they would be of service to others, and in that they would become great. Father, bless their lives, I pray. Bless their lives, I pray. Let them take hold of your word and realize what greatness is. What greatness is. It is servanthood. You want to be great on earth, you become the servant. Father, I pray that they would never forget this message, but they would always take the place of a servant and that through that you would make them great. Through that they would find spouses who also see greatness in them because of their servant-like spirit. Through that, you would bring them up in their careers and their jobs because their bosses would see greatness in servanthood. Lord Jesus, thank you that you demonstrate servanthood. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going before us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for caring enough for us that you share with us these truths. Glory be to your name. Amen.